The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. As a shift from exegetical teaching to expositional preaching. And what happens is you lost something in the process. And I remember, and it became more of an emphasis on, on a sermon. And I remember in the process that they were teaching us, they would say, okay, summarize your message, pick the uh, easy, every thought in the Scripture is expressed in a sentence, and a sentence is a context of a paragraph. So you need to teach in terms of paragraphs. Well, some paragraphs are very long, and even some paragraphs that are only two or three verses contain three or four clauses that are so packed with doctrine that to teach them in one 30-minute, 45-minute, or an hour class just doesn't do it justice. And yet, that was the way we were taught, and break it down into three or four points, you know, the old traditional three points in a poem type of approach. And so, and the idea was, so when people get home, they can remember it. Now, that sounds good, doesn't it? But see, I don't want to teach you two or three things so you can remember it. I want to teach it so repetitiously that you won't ever forget it. And there's an important difference between those two approaches. One is to ingrain, to, to learn anything well, whether it's music, whether it's uh, art, whether it's uh, sports, something in the military, whatever it is, to learn anything well, we have to do it again and again and again and again and again until we're just sick and tired of it. But it becomes so deeply ingrained in us that we just do it automatically when time, the time comes. And so that's, that's kind of the difference there. So you need to learn the basics. And we've been doing this, and now it's going to be on television in all three cable areas. If you live in the Comcast area, starting a week from Monday night at 6 to 6.30, if you live in the eastern cable area, it will begin on April 1st at either 9 or 9.30 we, we, uh, in the evening. We went down and set it up the other day, and when we left, Harold and I had a disagreement as to whether she said 9 or 9.30, so we'll check on that and get that verified, but uh, that's going to be good. The... When I initially started this, the idea was to run, just do 26 lessons, a com just a good, solid, basic series, and then repeat it every six months. 26 lessons would cover six months, and then just repeat it who knows how long. And Norwich Century Cable has a, has a policy of uh, you can only show everything twice. Comcast and Eastern don't have that policy. And they cover, Eastern covers 49,000 subscribers. So that covers uh, almost two-thirds, of, more than twice the other two because Comcast is a little over 10,000 and Century is a little over 10,000. So we're going to have tremendous coverage from this. So we'll just have to pray that the Lord will use that to reach people who are positive. So make a note of that and we'll have specific times next time. Scripture says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. 
Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusts in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we open God's word this morning, let's make sure we're in fellowship, a few moments of silent prayer, and then we'll begin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness to us, for your grace, for the way you have provided so much for us in our salvation package, that indeed you have given us everything necessary for life and godliness. And Father, as a part of that, we have our unique spiritual life, and you've given us everything we need to face and resolve any situation, heartache, difficulty, problem we face in life through the application of the principles of your word. Now, as we study your word to understand how we are to live, that we might have the stability, the happiness, and the joy that you have for us, we pray that you would help us to concentrate and focus on these things and to see how they relate to our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 5, and we continue our study at verse 1 on the doctrine of freedom, the doctrine of our liberty in Jesus Christ. Now, this is a crucial doctrine that is not often taught, not and even less understood by people. That is one reason that I am taking this time to go through it so uh, extensively for everyone, is to make sure we understand this, because this seems to be in the structure of what Paul is telling uh, the readers in Galatia. This seems to be the climax of his argument, starting in 5.1. 5.1 is really sort of a transitional verse. It brings to a conclusion the illustration at the end of chapter 4 where he compares the children of promise to the children of slavery, the children of, of uh, promise being the children that related to faith, and Isaac, the son of Abraham, and uh, the son of Abraham and Sarah, versus Ishmael, the son of Abraham, and Hagar, the slave woman. And the point is that The believer has freedom. He is not to be enslaved by the law, not to be enslaved by the sin nature, and we are to live on the basis of that freedom. And he is going to expand this concept of what this freedom includes in this verse, or in this entire chapter, and I think that this chapter is one of the most crucial chapters for us to understand in all the New Testament, because I think here... The Apostle Paul has encapsulated for us the essence of what the spiritual life is all about. And I don't think very many people really understand what's going on in this passage. So we need to look at this, and it starts off with the concept of freedom in verse 1, and there will be a return to this in verse 13, the emphasis on our freedom. So this... um, is crucial for us to understand, so we're going through it point by point and taking the entire doctrine, comparing Scripture with Scripture, classifying the Scripture according to the subject so that we can understand what God has to say to us about freedom. Now, let's just review very briefly what we have covered so far under the doctrine of our liberty in Christ. Point number one, 
we ask the question in, in terms of the context of this verse, from what are we set free? Are we set free from, uh, from having to obey God's Word? Are we set free from any mandates in the spiritual life? That's how some people want to take it. No, we are set free from the power of the sin nature. As an unbeliever, the Scripture says that we are in bondage to the sin nature, and an unbeliever has no option but to follow the dictates of the sin nature. Now, here's a picture of the diagram of the sin nature on the overhead. And we see that there are two areas, the area of weakness that produces personal sins, and then at the top, the area of strength which produces human good. And human good, according to the Scripture, is relative righteousness. It's dead works, according to Hebrews 6.1. And it <clears throat> has no value spiritually and has no and, and cannot and does not impress God. All our works of righteousness are as filthy rags, Isaiah 64.6. So as an unbeliever, everything comes from the sin nature. So it's either personal sin or it's human good. None of it has any value as far as God is concerned, does not impress God, and does not measure up to his absolute righteousness. So man, as an unbeliever, is enslaved and in bondage to the sin nature and can do no good. According to Romans chapter 3, there is none, none righteous, not even one. There is none that does good, not even one. So we are all in bondage to the sin nature, and this is the point that that Paul is making here is that we are set free from bondage to the sin nature and we are set free from bondage to the law. So in terms of the three phases of the sin nature, at phase one we are saved and we are free from the, freed from the penalty of sin. At phase two we are in the process of being freed from the power of the sin nature and in phase three we will be saved or free from the presence of the sin, sin nature. We're going to go over this chart. You've gone over it before and we'll go over it again and again so that it's ingrained in our thinking. The process of sanctification is phase two. This is the spiritual life, and this is why you have all of the mandates in Scripture. So I remember when I was young, people thinking or saying or hearing those, some people say that when we're free, we can do whatever we want to do. Well, that's not what freedom means. Freedom brings in the, the whole principle of responsibility. Freedom is one of the most difficult concepts for people to understand, much less live and apply in their lives, because freedom, real freedom, includes taking personal responsibility for all of your actions, all of your failures, as well as all of your successes. And we have trouble, especially in our society, accepting full responsibility for the decisions that we make in life. We really want to pass the buck. We want to blame somebody else. That's part of the sin nature. Adam, Adam gave us a prime example in the Garden of Eden after the fall when God came to challenge them and find out and to ask them what had happened. And Adam said it was the woman. That's the starting point. He gave us the example of how to pass the buck. And the woman, of course, passed the buck. And she said, no, it was the serpent. And ultimately they were saying, God, it was the serpent. You made the serpent. It's ultimately your fault. So we just don't want to accept responsibility for our own actions, and that's what freedom entails. As believers, we really are more comfortable with somebody giving us a set of rules to follow so that we know exactly what to do in each situation rather than having some sort of fuzzy parameters established by principles and we have to make a decision for A and for, or for B, either one of which might be right, and then accepting failure, accepting the responsibility for making a bad decision. 
And that's why you have so many Christians over the ages have slipped back into legalism. Because in legalism, you'll have a strict system of rules and regulations governing every single detail in life. This is what happened with the Pharisees. They were given the Mosaic Law to begin with. And the Mosaic Law, if you read it, even though there are over 600 uh, commands and prohibitions in the Mosaic Law, there, are, there, there is within that, that framework a certain amount of flexibility. And yet, as people would come along and they would say, okay, we're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, what exactly do you mean by work? Okay, let's say, can I go out and do this? Can I go out and do that? Can I get up if, if, it, if there was a hailstorm the night before and now it's raining and the roof is leaky? Can I get up on the roof and repair the roof? Is that work or not? Is that okay on the Sabbath? And they started asking detailed questions like that and the, the religious leaders began to come up with an even stricter code of conduct as to just exactly how everyone was supposed to apply the general principles. And that was the development of legalism and the development of the Pharisaic Code. And there are thousands of mandates and and precepts that the Pharisees adopted in terms of application of the Mosaic Law. And that destroys freedom. And so that brought in a second category of slavery, not only slavery to the Mosaic Law, but also slavery to the legalistic interpretation of the Pharisees. What we have seen in our study of Galatians is that the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, has taken human history. Well, represented here by a timeline, here's the original creation, here's the cross, and now we're here, starting on the day of Pentecost, down to the rapture, this is the church age. Now, Paul has taken this timeline and used it by analogy to the, to the life of, a, of an individual person from childhood to adulthood, so that the Old Testament period is compared or is analogous to being a child and under the authority of the pedagogue. And just as, a, as you as parents should know, you are, your job and responsibility is to teach your, ch- your children how to live as adults. You're preparing them for adulthood. From the moment they're born until they leave the house, your responsibility is to prepare them to be successful as adults. And so you're going to lay down a whole series of rigid rules and regulations of what they can do and what they cannot do when they have to uh, go to bed at night, when they have to get up, what they have to do in terms of practicing piano or dancing or sports or everything, you're going to lay down all of those rigid rules because you know they can't take responsibility for their actions yet. You can't give them that freedom. The younger they are, the more rules there are. As they get older and as they reach adolescence, you begin to loosen up a little bit, give them a little freedom, give them the opportunity to to make some decisions and to fail so that they can learn to take and accept responsibility for both their successes and their failures. But once they leave home, they're out on their own. Now, you've taught them all of these things, and you've given them a good background, and you hope that when they face certain situations that they will make right decisions because of the training they've had. Well, that's the analogy in the Scripture, is in the Old Testament, the Mosaic Law provided that rigid framework for living. But the Mosaic Law... And its authority ended at the cross. 
And in the New Testament, there are a variety of mandates. There are positive mandates for the spiritual life plus negative prohibitions. But within that parameter, there's a lot of flexibility. There's a lot of room for movement. There are a lot of decisions that people have to make that are not specifically addressed in the Scripture in terms of do this and don't do that. That's where taking responsibility for actions comes from and where there is true freedom. The only place in life that there is true freedom is in the spiritual life. We may have certain a modicum of freedom politically at different stages in history in different environments, but the only place where there is absolute freedom is in the spiritual life and in our relationship to God. And it is a freedom so that we can use our freedom either to succeed and to become uh, mature, spiritually mature believers, to advance to spiritual maturity and glorify God with our lives, or to use that freedom uh, as a license to sin and end up as a failure in the spiritual life to lose rewards at the judgment seat of Christ and to undergo, to have a life on this, in a life on earth that is uh, miserable, that's a, that is uh, characterized by a lot of divine discipline and <clears throat> does not glorify God. So freedom is related to two categories, success and failure. And to the degree that you have the freedom to succeed, you're going to have to have the freedom to fail. And we don't like failure. See, there's a principle here that's going to apply to, the, to, to life in general and to the political realm. If, if you want to cut off and provide a safety net for people so that if they make bad decisions, their failures won't be as harmful, then you're going to raise that level of failure up to here. And the same th- to the same degree that you raise the safety net up, you're going to lower the ceiling of success. You're going to take away from those at the top in order to protect those at the bottom. This is the essence of socialism, the essence of the welfare state, and the essence of, of what's governing much of our country today is we don't want freedom anymore. We want security. And freedom and security are antithetical ideas. There's a certain amount of insecurity and freedom because you may make many good decisions through life, And then all of a sudden, when you're 65, 70, 75 years of age, you may make a bad investment decision and lose everything. And now you're destitute. People don't want that, so they want the government to provide everything for them. But see, that's not the government's responsibility. The government's responsibility is not to guarantee our freedom. If they guarantee our freedom, they destroy our freedom. That's the paradox. And if they destroy our freedom to... to, uh, Uh, fail, they're going to destroy our freedom to succeed, and they're going to limit it. And the same thing happens in the spiritual life. So God has given us absolute freedom, and there are going to be thousands and thousands of believers at the judgment seat of Christ who have used their spiritual freedom or abused their spiritual freedom, and they have been failures in the spiritual life, and they will uh, experience incredible shame and misery at the judgment seat of Christ, and they will lose rewards, and they will... Uh, all their works will burn up and they will enter heaven yet as through fire, 1 Corinthians 3 says, and there will be shame at the judgment seat of Christ and they will not have an inheritance. They will not be heirs of the kingdom. They will be heirs of God. They will have eternal life. They will have a resurrection body and they will live in heaven and in the kingdom, but they will not be, the scripture says, possessors of the kingdom. They will not rule and reign with Jesus Christ or be joint heirs with Christ. 
That's how all of this ties together. So the issue is, how will you as a believer use your freedom? And the Galatians were in danger here because they were going to give up their freedom in order to go back to the security of the Mosaic law and put themselves back in bondage, just like the uh, Exodus generation. The Exodus generation had experienced uh, uh, years of slavery in Egypt. When God delivered them and took them out of Egypt, took them through the Red Sea, and they were out in the wilderness, life started getting a little rough. The food was rather uh, uh, repetitive, and it was the same thing day in and day out with God's provision, and they started complaining because uh, they, they wanted a little change. They wanted to go back to the leeks and garlics of Egypt. They wanted a little seasoning in their food. They wanted some gourmet food and not this divine fast food of manna every morning. And even though that supplied all of their needs, remember, this is an important principle. Just as the Bible provides all of our needs, it's not always exciting to come to church. It's not always exciting to learn doctrine. That's why a lot of people are going to the churches that have all the fancy music programs and spend 45 minutes clapping and jumping up and down and going through all sorts of uh, enthusiastic things and and that because it's not dull. Now, learning the Bible should never be dull and boring if you're positive. I mean, this is the most exciting thing we can ever do in life is to get into the Word of God and find out what God has to say to us about the spiritual life. And so in the, the, the Israelites got out there and they began to experience freedom and they didn't like it. What did they want? They want? Let's take us back to Egypt. We want to be slaves again. And it's amazing how many Christians... Now, they were all believers. But they were in carnality and they rejected the authority of Moses. They rejected the authority of God. They didn't like what freedom entailed and they wanted to go back to the security of slavery. And unfortunately, that's what many, many believers want is they want to go back to the security of slavery, of legalism. So they start erecting all kinds of uh, principles and codes of conduct that don't come from the Scriptures in order to give them a sense of security in life so that they're very comfortable within that rigid system and they don't have to deal with any kind of flexibility or freedom issues. Okay, in terms of review, what are we set free from? We are set free from the law, bondage to the law and bondage to sin. That was point number one. Point number two, freedom was secured by Christ's finished work on the cross. It was finished, Jesus said. The last thing he said on the cross to Telestai, it's, it is finished. This is based on the, the fact that freedom was secured is based on the use of the aorist tense here of eleutherao, which means to set free or to give liberty, the verb used here in 5.1. And then we took time to look at uh, Romans chapter 6 and to review the doctrine of positional truth. This is the, the positional realities that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. At the moment of faith alone in Christ alone, we are baptized by means of God the Holy Spirit. That means we are identified retroactively to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ on the cross. Because of that, we are dead to the sin nature. That doesn't mean we don't have a sin nature. It means that we are separated from the power and the dictatorship 
of the sin nature in our lives. So we don't have to follow that when we feel that overwhelming compulsion to sin, and we often do, and we often give in to it and feel and say, oh, well, I just didn't have any alternative. The Bible says, yes, you did. You had the alternative. You could have chose, easily chosen not to do it. I've given you everything you need through the provision of the filling of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. You just chose to ignore that. This is our positional reality. There are 40 positional realities that God provides for us at the moment of salvation. 39 are irrevocable. One is revocable, and that's the filling of the Holy Spirit. If you'd like to see a list of those 40 things, uh, we should have soon out here in the, in the foyer on the book rack, The Plan of God by Pastor Theme. And in the back of The Plan of God, there is a list of the 40 things that God does for us at the moment of salvation. Part of our positional reality is freedom in Christ. That is related to the doctrine of positional truth, both retroactive positional truth and current positional truth. So we went through Romans 6, uh, the, the entire chapter, and then and that took care of point number two. Point number three, positional sanctification provides freedom from slavery to the sin nature, and that's the latter part of Romans 6, starting in verse about verse 15. Point number four, the new life we have in Christ is uniquely a life in the sphere of God the Holy Spirit. This is something that is so overlooked today that the life that we have as believers is to be empowered by God the Holy Spirit. It's unique. Never before in human history has every single believer been filled by the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, you have what I call the endowment of the Holy Spirit. It was temporary. And it was not related to the spiritual life. That's important to understand. It was related to giving specific administrative abilities to leaders within the theocratic administration of the nation Israel. Remember, Israel was established as a theocracy. Theocracy means God rules. At the very top of the government hierarchy in Israel was God. Not the king, not a president, but God. That was as it was at the beginning. Later there was a king. But God was the head of the nation Israel. And so in, in terms of administering it on, on, on earth, God gave power, gave certain uh, leadership, administrative abilities to priests, to the craftsmen who built the, the tabernacle and the furniture in the tabernacle and the temple. And he gave certain administrative abilities to uh, some of the kings and, of course, to the prophets in revealing his word. But the Holy Spirit's ministry was not related to their spiritual life. It was just related to giving them wisdom and skill in a narrow area. And that uh, endowment was also temporary. Saul continued to fail time and time again. And finally, God took the Holy Spirit from him. And we'd never have a kind of preposition in the Hebrew to indicate an, an infilling, that the Holy Spirit was in the person, as we have in the New Testament in the Greek. So the filling of the Holy Spirit is unique, and this makes the spiritual life in the church age vastly different from any other era in human history. So point number four, the new life we have in Christ is uniquely a life in the sphere of God, the Holy Spirit, Romans 8.2. Point number five was the basis for living in freedom is the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. These are the two power options in the spiritual life. The filling of God, the Holy Spirit, and the Word of God. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 3, 17 through 18. Now, 
I started running out of time last week. I tried to complete the whole doctrine last week, so I skipped over some stuff on this point. I want to go back and look at it. So turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17. Here we read, Now the Lord is the Spirit. This is a reference to the deity of God the Holy Spirit, and I want to take just a minute to focus on the deity of God the Holy Spirit. This is a doctrine that has been attacked by the liberals, that there is no Holy Spirit, that the, the term spirit is just a reference to God, and this is not what the Scripture says. The use of the word Lord here is kurios, which is a translation and that's the Greek, the Hebrews, the sacred tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H, which is often pronounced Yahweh and is the personal name of God. So here in this first clause, now the Lord is the Spirit, is a statement that the Spirit is divine. The Spirit is identified with Yahweh. Now, we know that God, the Holy Spirit, is divine for a number of different reasons. For example, in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8 through 9, in comparison with Acts 28, 25 through 27. Now, this is very interesting. In Isaiah 6, 8, Isaiah says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Now, who is speaking here? The voice of the Lord. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Notice the, the first phrase, the first question, Whom shall I send? In the Hebrew is a first person singular pronoun. First person common singular pronoun, I. And then the second question, Who will go for us? And there you have a third person plural pronoun indicating a plurality in the Godhead. And Isaiah answers and says, Here am I, send me. And then in verse 9, And he, that is, we're still talking about the Lord speaking. And he said, Go and tell this people, Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. So God is speaking, and this is the statement that God makes. Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, and their eyes dim, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Okay, that's the content of what it, the Scripture says, the Lord said. Now, compare that to what Acts 28, 25 and following says. In Acts 28, we have the Apostle Paul uh, speaking, and it's, it, here we read, And when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. Now, what does the Apostle Paul say? He says, the Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers. Now, what just happened? Think about it a minute. Isaiah said, the Lord said this. In Acts 28, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is identified as the one who spoke in Isaiah 6. Verse 20, Isaiah, Acts 28, 26, saying, Go to this people and say, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand, and you will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. So, Acts 28, 26, and 27 is a quote from Isaiah 6, 9, and 10. In Isaiah, it says it's God speaking, the Lord speaking. And in Acts 28, 25, Paul says it's the Holy Spirit speaking. 
So that identifies God, the Holy Spirit, as divine, as part of the Godhead. You have the same kind of thing in Jeremiah 31. Just note it in your notes. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, which is the articulation of the New Covenant. And when that is compared to Hebrews 10, 15 through 17, the writer of Hebrews attributes attributes it to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us For after saying, this is the covenant which I will make with them. In other words, the Holy Spirit is is stated in Hebrews 10 as being the one who speaks in Jeremiah 31, 31. Now, let's further develop the deity of the Holy Spirit here. And I wanted to put this up here on the overhead so you can see this. while I run through these passages, and you'll be able to get this in your notes. Various other attributes of deity are ascribed to God the Holy Spirit. He is said to be omniscient in 1 Corinthians 2, 10, and 11. He knows everything. He searches the deep things of God. He is omniscient. He is omnipotent in Genesis 1, 2. He is portrayed there as hovering over the earth, in preparing it for the restoration, the seven days of restoration in Genesis chapter 1, the omnipotence of the Spirit. He is omnipresent in Psalm 139, verse 7. In this passage, in our 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17, the Holy Spirit is called kurios, which connotes deity. Further, the Holy Spirit is said to be eternal in Hebrews 9, 14. So, all of these attributes are attributes of deity, and they are all ascribed to God the Holy Spirit. So, the conclusion is, God the Holy Spirit possesses the attributes of deity, so therefore, God the Holy Spirit must be uh, fully divine. This is further demonstrated through the titles of God the Holy Spirit. He is called the Spirit of God in Genesis 1-2, and in the Greek of Matthew 3-16. He is called the Spirit of the Lord in Luke 4-18, the Spirit of Yahweh in Judges 2-10, the Spirit of the Lord God in Isaiah 61-1, the Spirit of the living God in 2 Corinthians 3-3, my Spirit in Genesis 6-3, and the Spirit of our God in 1 Corinthians 6-11. So all of these titles indicate that God the Holy Spirit is fully divine. And, of course, the use of that third person plural pronoun in Isaiah chapter 6 indicates that he is part of the Trinity. Now we saw in reference to freedom in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that this is the Holy Spirit is the one who provides this environment and is the spiritual environment for believers. Let's go on to point number six. Point number six was that the basis for this transformation, for the transformation of our life that's referred to in 2 Corinthians 3.18, that we with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So he he is the one who's involved in the transformation of our lives. And the basis, point six, the basis for this transformation is the completed canon of Scripture, which is called the law of liberty in James 1.25 and James 2.12. 
in contrast to the Mosaic law, which was characterized by bondage. Now, I want to stop a minute and emphasize a point that I don't think is very clear to a lot of people. Let's go back to a basic analogy at salvation. How are you saved? You are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. You believe the gospel. So the action on your part is to believe. It is a non-meritorious action because all of the merit belongs in the object of faith, which is really twofold. We never really express it this way. Ultimately, it is the cross. And all of the merit resides in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. But how do you know that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins? How do you know that? This is the part we don't talk about very much because the Scripture says so. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So we're believing a propositional statement in Scripture that Jesus Christ died as a substitute for our sins. So you are believing the Scripture which tells you that Christ did everything. So the ultimate object is Christ. All the merit lies in the cross and you are believing through the witness of the Scripture. So you believe in the cross and the result is that God justifies you. Justification, salvation, phase one. You are justified by faith alone. Now, how are you sanctified? How is, are you brought to spiritual maturity? Are you brought to spiritual maturity by what you do? Or are you brought to spiritual maturity by faith in the Scriptures? Let's try to make this real clear. It's not clear to a lot of people. And we have to go over this again and again because Paul draws this analogy. This is why back at the beginning of chapter 3 in this section on sanctification, he says, Are you so foolish, having begun by means of the Spirit, are you now being matured by means of the flesh? In the spiritual life, phase 2, you still operate on faith. What's the object of faith? The object of faith is the Scripture. All of the mandates and prohibitions contained in the Scripture, in other words, Bible doctrine. Now, let's go to our grace learning spiral. First of all, you have the pastor teacher who is uniquely gifted by God to get into the Scriptures and study the Scriptures and extrapolate from the Scriptures the principles related to the spiritual life. It's not merely a communication gift, it is also a study gift, an ability to understand and communicate. God the Holy Spirit uses the pastor-teacher to teach the Word, and then God the Holy Spirit, who fills the believer under the filling of the Holy Spirit, makes it understandable as pneumaticos doctrine. P-N-E-U-M-A-T-I-K. O-S. Pneumaticos doctrine. Final accent is on the final syllable. Now that makes it understandable, but he doesn't understand it for you. God the Holy Spirit does not replace your mentality. 
He merely makes the doctrine understandable. Okay, then it continues its cycle. You exercise positive volition at this stage to hear the Word of God and listen to it, and you believe it. Now, here's your soul. You have In the innermost part of your soul, you have two spheres. You have the innermost sphere, which is the cardia, the innermost part thinking of the soul, and the outer sphere of the noose, the mind. It enters into the noose, and there it becomes gnosis, which is academic knowledge. Again, you exercise positive volition, and at this point it is transferred in under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit, it is transferred into your cardia, and here it becomes epinosis doctrine. Let me help you with an, an analogy here. Jeremiah said, I took your words and I did eat them. So we're going to use the analogy of eating. You go to the store and you pick out all your vegetables and seasonings and meats and whatever it is you're going to prepare for your meal. And you take that meal and then you cook it and you prepare it and you set it out on the table before you. That's sort of the function of the pastor teacher. He takes all the raw ingredients, puts it together, prepares a meal, sets it before you. Then you have to exercise your volition to eat or not to eat. That's a volitional decision. We make it every day, three, four, five, six, eight, ten times. Or more. And we, we eat. Now, volition's involved. We take the fork or our fingers or whatever's handy, and we take the food and we put it into our mouth, and we begin to chew it, masticate it, and swallow it. Volition's involved up to that point. But the moment you swallow it, which is analogous to this stage here where you believe it, where you take the Word of God and you say, I truly, I not only understand it, but that is mine. I believe that. That is the essence of what I believe about life. God the Holy Spirit transfers that just as once you swallow that food, involuntary muscles take over. That means it's no longer up to your volition what happens to the food after you swallow it, and it goes, starts to go down into your stomach. Automatic processes take over to break down the food, digest the food, to break it down into basic chemicals, most of which is sugar, and put that out into your bloodstream and take those nutrients out to your, to your uh, various muscle cells, cells, brain cells, where it provides nutrition and growth and it becomes usable energy. Doesn't take, you don't, it doesn't automatically take you down to the gym and work out your muscles. It just provides that which can be applied to working out your muscles, or working out your physical muscles or your cognitive muscles. But that's volition again. What happens in this process is we're simply talking about taking the doctrine from the page of Scripture into the innermost part of your soul where it becomes usable as epinosis doctrine. That is all done by faith. That's the process of sanctification. The result of that, you use your volition. Once you have all this epinosis stored in your soul... Then you have to use your volition in various issues in life to apply what you have learned. 
Now, the average pastor and Christian thinks that you do certain things in the spiritual life, and that's the cause, and the result is that you are sanctified. But that's sanctification by works. This is the problem most Christians don't understand this. The Galatians didn't understand this. They thought that if I get out here and do the law, then the result is going to be that God's going to bless me and I will be sanctified. But what the Scriptures teach is on the analogy with salvation, you have to learn the Word and you believe the Word. The result is that you are transformed and transformation takes place on the inside. It's that metamorpho from Romans 12, 2, and what we just saw in 2 Corinthians 3, 17, and 18, you are transformed. The Holy Spirit changes you on the inside. This is where sanctification takes place. And the result of your sanctification is application. And this is the doing. The doing does not cause God to say, okay, you're now doing what I said to do, so I'm going to sanctify you. You learn the Word of God. You believe it. God says, God the Holy Spirit transforms you from the inside out, and that is sanctification now that you are set apart to God by means of the Word of God and the Spirit of God and the inner transformation. Then you begin to apply it. So, sanctification is what? It's by faith alone. In the Word of God. It's not... Sanctification is not going out and doing. That's legalism. And that's what happens in most churches, and that's what happens with most people who think, um, who teach on sanctification, is they've got things reversed. So, how does that work out in application? You go to a church, and they immediately try to sign you up to do this or to do that or get involved in Sunday school or whatever it is because the more you do, the more you'll be sanctified. And that's one of the distinctives that we have is that I don't want you doing anything until you know the Word of God. You need to come here and sit here and let your inner life be transformed by the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And as you are then sanctified, eventually that will produce the fruit of the Spirit, the production right in life. Now that takes a lot longer things happen right away, and you may not have people going out day in and day out, knocking on doors, passing out tracts, and doing all kinds of things that typical churches do in order to get you, quote, sanctified, and to help you mature, because they're based on, it's very subtle difference, but it's maturity by works. And I would rather have people sit and listen to the teaching of the Word of God, and quietly, and very slowly, and gradually see it transform their thinking and you see it all the time. All of a sudden, people... You see, I almost see light bulbs go off over your head sometimes as you begin to realize what the spiritual life is all about. And it's not about doing. It's about thinking. And you, first, you have to learn to think right. And that will result... If it's true epinosis doctrine, it will result in a changed life. The trouble with many people is, as I've said this before is they never understand it. That's why you have repetition, repetition, repetition. You don't always understand this the first time, the second time, or the 50th time you hear it. And then all of a sudden, 
the light goes on and it becomes gnosis. Now, the trouble is a lot of people think that because they can articulate it back or they've got it in their notebooks that it's gnosis. And that's why you see people 10, 15 years down the road say all of us go through some kind of a, a testing or some trial or suffering, and then they say, well, doctrine doesn't work. And they peel out and they go to psychology or they get involved in emotionalism and they go the charismatic route or something like that, and you just sit back and go, what happened to them? They had it all together. But they never really had gnosis. They were just able to repeat what they heard. But they never truly understood it. See, the Holy Spirit, that's why I keep emphasizing this, that the Holy Spirit makes it understandable. He doesn't understand it for you. You have to think about it. You have to, just as you chew food to prepare it for digestion, you have to chew, and that's that word meditate that we find in the Scriptures in the Old Testament. You have to chew doctrine. You have to think it over so that it becomes understood in your mentality so that God the Holy Spirit can then use it. You can't believe it till you understand it. And to understand it means sometimes you have to take and exercise a little mental sweat in understanding the doctrine. So that's the role of God the Holy Spirit, and that is how we are matured and sanctified by means of faith, sanctified by faith and not by works. So point number six, the basis for transformation is the completed canon of Scripture, the Word of God, which is called the lit law of liberty. We have the freedom to fail, the freedom to succeed. Point number seven was that the purpose for spiritual freedom is to advance spiritually as bond slaves to God, not to excuse, justify, or rationalize sin. This is what happens to many believers because they have a trend in the sin nature which is a trend towards antinomianism, licentiousness, there's our word, they're going to use grace as a license to sin, or lasciviousness, that's the trend of their sin nature. The other trend is towards asceticism and legalism. Now, what is asceticism? Well, an ascetic is a weak person who has given in to the temptation to trying to impress God by giving up the pleasures of life. That's an ascetic. It's a weak person who's given in to the temptation to try to impress God by giving up the pleasures of life. The antinomian is a lawless person. It comes from the Greek combination of Greek words, anti, namos, against the law, against law, and just says, well, God's paid for everything. I can just do what I want to, and grace will cover it. And Paul says, no, may it never be. That's a wrong application. Licentiousness and lasciviousness, those are the two trends. And everybody goes one way or the other, and your kids do that. And you can watch them, and you can help them identify their trends. Now, sometimes you'll trend towards asceticism in 70% of your life, and the other 30%, you're going to trend towards lasciviousness. So there's always these various mixes in, the spirit, in, the, uh, in our lives. So this purpose for spiritual freedom is to advance, not to rationalize or justify our sin. 1 Peter 2.16 says, Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves to God. See, where the Bible says that you're a slave. You're either going to be a slave to your sin nature or you're going to be a slave to righteousness. But when you think that you're going to just do it the way you want to do it, that's being a slave to sin. Don't deceive yourself. 
either be a slave to your sin nature or a slave to God, but there's no other option. Galatians 5.13, For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Point number eight. The enemy of freedom and grace is legalism. Legalism promotes intrusion, superficial and external codes of ethics and morality, and focuses on failure. If you've ever been in a legalistic church, they're always looking for somebody who's not applying the code, whatever it is. And the focus is on, oh, you're wearing the wrong thing today, or you've you got too much makeup on, or, or uh, <clears throat> you went to the wrong place. We saw you in a place that served alcohol the other night. I remember hearing the story about um, um, one man who, uh, Bob Jones, I forget which one it was, there were Bob Jones Jr., Bob Jones III. Bob Jones is a Christian school down in, I think it's in Carolina, North Carolina somewhere. Very legalistic school, South Carolina. Very legalistic school. I, I was amazed the first time I ever met anybody who had been there that, that uh, <clears throat> if you were dating, you always had to have a chaperone and that... Uh, Men and women couldn't touch, couldn't kiss, couldn't go anywhere without a chaperone. And women couldn't wear makeup. They couldn't watch, nobody could watch television or go to a movie or anything. I was just amazed at that. And one time, um, Bob Jones went over to England to visit and met and visited with C.S. Lewis, who was a very famous apologist. And uh, uh, he was a scholar, uh, medieval, I believe he was, his specialty was medieval literature. Brilliant man. Absolutely brilliant. If you've ever read his books, Mere Christian, or if you've never read Mere Christianity or the Screw Tape, Screw Tape Letters, uh, I really recommend them. They're very good. And Bob Jones came back from England and said, The man might be saved, but he drinks scotch. <laughs> you see, legalists focus on the failures, but when you're Aligned with grace, your focus is on success. Grace promotes freedom, privacy. Freedom includes the freedom to fail. When you're grace-oriented, you realize everybody's a sinner and they're going to fail, and so you're not going to run around wagging your finger in their face because they really screwed up. Because sooner or later, you're going to screw up. Maybe not in the same way, maybe not as horrifically, maybe not as overtly, but if you're wagging your finger in their face, you're so arrogant that you're screwing up in a mental attitude way that's just not as obvious. So grace promotes freedom, privacy, internal transformation, and the focus is on success. Point number nine. Legalism seeks to enslave the believer and destroy spiritual liberty. Legalism seeks to enslave the believer and destroy spiritual liberty. Galatians 2.4 But it was because of the false brethren who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. The Apostle Paul said these legalists were trying to check out our liberty and for the purpose of bringing us into bondage. Point number 10. True freedom always recognizes legitimate spheres of authority. Freedom is not anti-authority. True freedom recognizes legitimate spheres of authority. In the temporal realm, this includes government. In the political realm, in marriage, it's the husband who is the authority in the home. In the family, it is the parents who are the authority in the home. Parents, you need to make sure you're the authority and not your kids. 
Sometimes parents get so caught up with their kids that the kids become a distraction to the parents' learning doctrine. Your job is, when you look at that little child of yours, is to realize that that is nothing more than a sin nature. And your job spiritually as a parent, I don't care how cute he is, I don't care how smart he is or she is, that's nothing but a little sin nature. And your job as a parent, one of the greatest things that you as a parent can ever experience in your life, is to explain the gospel to that child and see them accept the Lord as their Savior. And it's your job as a parent to teach those. It's not our job at the church. We are a supplement. Your job as a parent is to teach your kids doctrine at home. I remember in, I think it was Mother's Day of 1959. I don't know what pastor theme taught that morning in church, but my parents took me home and sat me down and explained the gospel to me. And I trusted the Lord and, and ran down the street and told my best buddy at the time. But that's one of the greatest things that you can do as a parent is to make sure your kids understand the gospel. You need to teach that to them on a consistent basis. That's your responsibility. You are the head of the home, and you need to make sure that that you get your kids to church, to Bible class. Wednesday night, Sunday morning, they need to learn that from you. You need to exemplify that that should be the priority in their life, is to be here. Nothing else matters. I don't care when it's all said and done. It's not how great their grades were. It's not all the activities they participated in. It's not the sports. All that's good and fine. I'm not against that. But when it's all said and done in life, we need to look back and realize we were not distracted from the real issue, which is the spiritual life, by all the good things in life. And there's so many fun things and so many good things and enjoyable things that are available today, but they can be terrible distractions to the spiritual life. And your job as a parent is to exemplify the priorities and to teach them those priorities. In fact, we were talking yesterday that uh, how uh, I have seen over the years parents with kids in all, you wouldn't believe what these kids are involved in, and yet they're at Bible class five nights a week and twice on Sunday, never skip a beat, and make almost straight A's. But that's because the parents emphasize the priorities and organization in the life and get the right things done. Okay, freedom recognizes legitimate spheres of authority <clears throat> in the uh, secular realm. It's government, in marriage, the husband, and the family parents. In the spiritual realm, this includes the mandates of Scripture, the authority of God, and the authority of the pastor-teacher in the local congregation. Remember, freedom without authority is anarchy. Freedom without authority is anarchy. Authority without freedom is tyranny. So there's no freedom under... In the sin nature, it's just authority, and so we are under the tyranny of the sin nature until we are saved. Point number 11. Freedom includes privacy. Freedom includes privacy. You have to give people a certain realm of privacy so that they can use the doctrine they have to succeed or fail, and we're all going to go through various levels of failure in the spiritual life. We live in an era today when the church wants to be very intrusive in people's spiritual life. It's 
dominated by legalism. There's a lot of reaction today, and I know of seminaries who are dividing their students up into various cell groups, or what they call spiritual formation groups, or discipleship groups, and they start mandating certain levels of accountability to one another. Well, we're not accountable really to anybody else but God in terms of our spiritual life. And they start dictating to one another how they're to live their lives and confessing all their sins to each other and trying to be vulnerable and open and all of this other nonsense that you can't demonstrate from Scripture at all. You don't see the Apostle Paul getting everybody together in some little accountability group so that we can all sit around and hold hands and tell each other how tempted we are in sexual lust. And then you get everybody involved in, in judging and mental attitude sins and, and uh, everything else that goes with it. And this is what's dominating uh, spiritual life in, in most seminaries today. I'm talking about the conservative ones like Dallas and Western and Trinity and some of those. Uh, verse 12, I mean point 12. To the degree that we have the freedom to fail in the spiritual life, we have the freedom to succeed. Legalism wants to dominate and control people so there's no freedom to fail, which destroys the freedom to succeed. To the degree that we have the freedom to fail, we have the freedom to succeed. Legalism wants to dominate and control so that there is no freedom to fail, and that destroys freedom to succeed. Point number 13, freedom guarantees inequality. We've lost the idea of that in our culture, that freedom guarantees inequality. The greater the freedom, the greater the inequality. Some people are going to use their freedom to pursue excellence and others to pursue, to squander their spiritual assets, assets, and they're going to become failures in the spiritual life. Whenever you have true freedom, some people are going to succeed and some are going to fail and there are going to be vast differences. So freedom guarantees inequality. Point 14, this is the last point in the doctrine of freedom. True freedom only comes under the knowledge of the Word of God. John 8, 31 through 34. Jesus said, therefore, to the Jews who had believed Him, If you abide in My Word, then you are truly disciples of Mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Later, Jesus defined the truth as the Word of God. What is it that makes you free? It's knowledge and application of Bible doctrine under the filling of God the Holy Spirit. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Psalm 119.45 recognizes this principle. And I will walk at liberty, for I seek thy precepts. I will walk at liberty, for I seek thy precepts. True freedom in this life comes only in the spiritual life and is only experienced when you are applying doctrine under the filling of God the Holy Spirit and advancing to spiritual maturity. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank You for the opportunity we've had to look at these doctrines, to come to understand in a more detailed way what the freedom is that we have in Christ and how magnificent this this is because it is this freedom that we have that allows us to advance to spiritual maturity and to glorify You in every area of our life. Father, we pray that as we study these things, that God the Holy Spirit will make them clear to us and bring them to our memory time and again, that we might uh, be mindful of these great privileges that you have given us as part of our salvation. Father, we also pray that if there's anyone here without hope or without eternal life, uncertain and unsure of their eternal destiny, that they would take the opportunity right now 
to settle that issue. All they have to do is pray silently to you, Father, I believe Jesus died on the cross as a substitute for my sins. It's not as a result of works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to your mercy, you saved us. So, Father, now as we leave, we pray that you would uh, remind us of these things, that they might be real to us under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.